0: Hey, I'm Jesse, let's have another devotion. We're going back and reviewing some of the mountaintop moments throughout 1 Corinthians. And uh, we see in chapter seven, the most amazing prescription for like how an intimacy life in a marriage is to work. But Paul, again, leaves no stone unturned, regardless of your marital status. Everybody gets spoken to directly by the Holy Spirit through this book. It is remarkable the number of topics that this, this uh, letter has addressed. We're talking about everything from intimacy to tongues to uh, the Lord's Supper to spiritual gifts to the resurrection. It's it's all over the place and it's really cool. So it's not that Paul has ADD. It's that Paul is addressing the punch list that's been given to him by by letters, and so he uses a he uses a grammatical device that establishes like a new train of thought, a new matter to be discussed regarding this, regarding that and the original Greek carries with it this connotation and think of it like a a new chapter heading per se. It's not divinely inspired in that regard as as though it has to be formatted according to a new chapter, but it is clear that he goes from addressing one thing to another very different thing, all of them in succession. And then what's remarkable to me and what I'm trying to illuminate in these last couple of weeks of devotions is the thread that runs throughout all of them. So when giving this teaching in chapter 7 to to married people, he gets to chapter 8, and this is where he addresses food that's sacrificed to idols. To ancient Corinth, this was a a big matter of confusion and dispute. But Paul is calling upon the believers in the church to be self-sacrificial in this regard, to to give of themselves uh, freedoms that would cause their brother or sister in Christ to stumble where they caught exercising said freedoms. That it's better for you to just give up eating meat even, if that's what it takes, to protect your brother or sister in Christ who just a short time ago was caught up in that uh, idolatrous scene. And then chapter nine comes, and there are some two really cool themes that come up in this. In the opening of, the chapter, of chapter nine, it's about giving to the church and about making provision for uh, the salary, you know, of the pastor of the church at Corinth. He planted the church at Corinth and Apollos took over. Uh, Paul did the same thing with the church at Philippi, did the same thing through Timothy's ministry where he would go and help plant a church, but then he would, he would, uh, visit the church and then forego their gift to him, but chide them for not offering if they didn't offer it. Now in chapter nine, he's laying out this, uh, these instructions for God's will regarding the apostles. That those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And then at the end of chapter nine, takes on this really cool stance about the drastic ends to which we are to make the gospel understood in our various contexts and to stop at nothing, short of sin itself, to reach as many people for the gospel as we possibly can, to become all things to all people so that by the grace of God, we might see some of them saved. And don't do this half-heartedly, run this race so as to win it. So here's the first half of chapter nine, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Remember he planted this church. If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? By the way, the Lord's brothers, one of those gets mentioned in chapter 15. It's James. It's James. It's an incredible thing, right? To see the brother of Christ, uh, the brother of Christ attest to the resurrection of Christ, having seen the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus resurrected, he spoke to Mary Magdalene and one of the very first orders that he gave was to let his brothers know what was going on. It's incredible because James has has got to be one of the least likely people ever to believe. I was meeting with the students and we talked about exactly this. You just imagine that God, you know, that one of your siblings comes to you and says like, I'm God. Like, how many seconds go by before you slap him or her? But this was actually the case for James. Okay, my my siblings were high achievers too, and so I can imagine, but can you imagine being Jesus's sibling? Can you imagine trying to beat Jesus at Mario Kart? He just goes over the water every time. And so James is the least likely guy to believe. In fact, when Jesus was going about ministry and uh, he was feeding thousands of people, and then his mother and brothers show up, and it's, it's believed that they could be trying to get Jesus to stop making a fool of himself. They would even mock him before he goes down to the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Temples. And they, they were not fans of his. These brothers of Jesus, the biological sons of Mary and Joseph, were not fans of Jesus. But now one of them becomes an apostle, which means he sees his half-brother resurrected. That's James. So Paul's asking about this, like, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an apostle just like these guys. Don't I have the right Here's verse six. Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law say the same thing, meaning the law of Moses? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? At the surface, it could seem like it is. Yeah, this is, yeah. A helpful tip for caring for your ox. Make sure you don't muzzle it while it's working for you. Paul's like, this is not about oxen. He's He's talking about pastors. Isn't this, isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake. Because he who plows ought to plow in hope. And he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much that we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we uh, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. So to sacrifice uh, and to help the finances of the church at Corinth move forward, Paul elected to do it all for free, subsidizing his own ministry through his tent-making business on the side. But you can see how direct he's being with the church at Corinth about how this is God's design. This is God's design for the church. It's how it works, that those who sow in you receive something back from you. Jesse, does that require a tithe per se? In the Old Testament, there were actually like three tithes and this was Israel. So it'd come out to be somewhere around 23 to 30% of your income where 10% would go to the temple, 10% would go to uh, actually serve as taxes in a theocratic sense, so you're still giving it to God anyway. And then 10% would go to kind of the common welfare of those who were in need. And that was the Old Testament model. And our New Testament model, Tithing can serve as a great model, but be open to the fact that God might be calling you to give more, uh, that you give out of just generosity. 10% then might not be nearly generous enough for you. Uh, if, you can, if you can spare more than 10% of your income, then uh, you're called to give more. That you give to God and what you sow in Christ, what you sow in the church bears eternal significance. This is something that I think that uh, the devil is going to attack next. This is something that's coming under fire more and more. Uh it's the it's the most obtuse thing ever, but there are a lot of, lot of critics of Christianity who are trying to call for churches to be taxed, as though uh, indicating they have no idea what the separation of church and state actually is, what it actually means. I have no concept of passages like these, 1 Corinthians 9, that it's God's will that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Okay, I'm like like Paul, I'm bivocationaling it right now. My wife and I are doing real estate, but Paul is speaking about the pastor who's so poor that he's undignified. Uh, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain, comes back from this Old Testament command about the, limiting the number of lashes you give a man uh, if corporal punishment was prescribed in the Old Testament. Because it's not good for your brother to be undignified in your sight. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. The man's got a job to do. Don't strip him of his dignity in the same way. Like if, if the, uh, don't look at it as though it's it's good stewardship. If your church has the belief and the policy that, uh, yeah, you know what? Um, see those destitute kids wearing sackcloth over there? Those are my pastor's kids. We're pretty good stewards of our money at this church. <laughs> No, man. You've stripped your brother of his dignity. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. God's not, this, this verse is not about oxen, it's about the ones who preach the gospel to you. Nonetheless, Paul again prides himself on his own uh, his own refusal to accept this gift. And what he's done is created a structure, and infrastructure in place so that as he plants churches, other pastors could take his place and they can go on and plant more churches and plant more churches and plant more churches. And those churches are overseen by pastors uh, who could afford to give their full time and focus to the church itself. But then he takes this transition in chapter nine, and these were taught in different contexts originally in our, in our, our, our plan through the book, but I wanna talk about this because this was a pivotal teaching. This is another mountaintop teaching to me. Verse 19, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like the one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Paul does not want a participation trophy. He is there for the gold medal. He wants to win as many people to Christ as he possibly can. In verse 25, he transitions into what is coming up uh, in chapters 10 and 11, which we'll talk about tomorrow, but I wanted to i wanted to bring this up. He makes sure that the church gets it, that they are to give in such a way to provide for their pastor. He prides himself on foregoing that very financial right that he has as an apostle. But this final teaching is something I think is really pivotal within, uh, within 1 Corinthians. He becomes all things to all people. This does not mean that he, he becomes an intellectual chameleon and he conflicts himself. It doesn't mean that he talks out of both sides of his mouth. Okay, it doesn't mean that he Dr. Fauci's this thing and whoever he's talking to he changes his message. Rather, it means that he is bringing the gospel to absolutely everybody. To the weak he becomes weak. Okay, he's already given this illustration in chapter 8. If somebody doesn't if somebody has a real hang up about eating meat, guess what? He'll give up eating meat. All right, that's a weaker brother, like he's talked about in chapter 8 before. To those who are those who don't have the law, he goes to meet with them. All right, he, we saw this in the book of Acts when he would speak to Jews he would draw all the way from Abraham. When he would speak to Gentiles, he would go back to like the dawn of time and the Logos. Right, he would, he would adapt his approach given his audience. He would speak in the context of the room that he was in. Here at the Redemption Church, we're gonna start a ministry called The Table. And at The Table, uh, I was speaking with our leaders and we were talking about this and praying about this. We're gonna gather around a table. We're gonna have a meal together. Have like this opening session and then break out for for questions. When people have questions for God, we just come listen. And the hope is that we share the gospel with them throughout the course of the week as we answer those questions. But when we eat that meal, we're not gonna pray to bless the food. All right, which sounds weird, right? I mean, I may mean, like privately privately pray myself, like God please bless the food I'm about to consume right here. Just just an acknowledgement of what first Timothy teaches. But because I've invited people who are who are perhaps very far from God to the table, I wanna invite them in such a way that they're gonna hear the gospel. And I wanna do whatever it takes to preach the gospel. I wanna do whatever it takes to reach as many people as we possibly can before we die. This is what I said over and over again, by the fire pit, when recruiting the Yeti and the wildflower leaders, we wanna do absolutely whatever it takes to reach as many men, as many women for Jesus as we possibly can before we die. That's the objective of our events. This is what we said over and over again at the beginnings of those meetings, at the ends of those meetings, and throughout those meetings, that's our hope for them. And uh, that's what Paul is articulating here, that he wants to do absolutely whatever it takes. In verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. In order to win the weak, I become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. So you're not left totally unrewarded for this, by the way. Your willingness to do whatever it takes to reach as many people as you possibly can for the gospel is something that God rewards. When we were in the gospel of John, we saw this, that God rewards both the one who sows and the one who reaps now these two halves of chapter nine they might seem disconnected in a way but they aren't because a church has a good solid giving infrastructure in place it's able to do a whole lot more to reach a whole lot more people do you see that because uh, the one who preaches the gospel earns his living by the gospel, he can preach the gospel a whole lot more and can reach a whole lot more people with the gospel. It's actually, it's actually quite contiguous. It may seem like they're, they're unrelated, but the financial backing is necessary for that, that, that drastic evangelistic reach in chapter 9. Now, this brings up something that's going to carry a thread through chapter 11, but for now, I wanted to remind you of this teaching in chapter 9 and ask the question, if you've implemented it, if you lived up to it, have you, like Paul, been, able, been willing to do drastic things, even what he says, like whatever it takes, by every possible means, to save some. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 22. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now don't, hold your virtue signaling. Don't tell Paul, no, Paul, you're not saving anybody. It's Jesus who saves him. Like Paul knows that. He reminds us of that. Listen to what he writes, all things possible every possible means, they might save some. Have you exercised every possible means? If not, we haven't yet lived up to chapter nine. That's my question.